You're listening to 17 Karat K-Pop. For more about this show and my other show, Enthusiasts, plus to get the latest interviews, K-pop news, album reviews, and so much more, subscribe to the show's free newsletter at 17karatkpop.substack.com. Enjoy the show! Hello, everybody. Welcome back to 17 Karat K-pop. I'm doing some separate episodes about certain pieces of my Best of May episode. Some releases I just wanted to do standalone episodes dissecting including Les Seraphim's Unforgiven. So I decided why not make this a two-in-one and also double it as an episode that's just your complete guide to the group and their discography. So first, a primer. Then in the second half, stay tuned, because finally it's been way too long. I get to go off on a nerdy story time again, recapping some bizarre classic fairy tales for you. Check out the episodes about N-Hyphen, as well as the one called Music and Mythology, for more of that. But today we're talking about a new mythology character, and, of course, Bluebeard. The story is wild, really excited to share my interestingly annotated version, so stay tuned for that. But first, a guide to Les Seraphim, then we'll get to the references. This girl group was highly anticipated, to say the least, coming from Hybe slash Big Hit Labels. Being part of a HYBE company comes with inherent pressure because it's the company that brought us BTS, TXT, etc. But especially for girl groups because the last time they tried to promote a girl group, Glam, it's a long story and also a short story. It didn't last, did not go well for the company. So trying again with a girl group, people were very curious how this would unfold. And this rollout is really the opposite of messy. They've been such a hit. The group name is an anagram of I Am Fearless, and that's what they've been. I do like, as much as the next K-pop fan, when K-pop groups are just kind of all over the place. They have the summer releases, the flower boy vibes, the wholesomeness, but then they have the edgy, cool kids vibes for different comebacks. A mix of light and dark, they run the gamut. I like that stuff as much as the next person, but there is something to be said about the groups who don't go to those extremes. They just stay in one lane. And I really hope Les Seraphim continue to do that, where they just stay really bold and confident, don't go for a cutesy concept, just stay very fierce because that is their signature thing and it just makes sense for them. And I've always boiled down their appeal to the ways they really do show fearlessness and an uncompromising self-presentation. Like they have videos with posing in a prom dress, a quote-unquote girly look, and their boxing gloves. Or they do death-defying stunts in the video, but they wear heels or a dress, things like that. They don't care about your labels of what's quote-unquote tomboyish or quote-unquote feminine or quote-unquote weak or tough. They are not delicate little flowers, but they're not full thorns either, basically. Speaking of flower metaphors, their phantom name is Fear Not, which means, of course, Fear Not, but also it sounds kind of similar to the Korean word for bloom. And that's the second part of their appeal. First, I do think is, well, the catchy music, of course, corresponding with people who really pull it off, who are walking the walk about rejecting stereotypes and being their fearless selves. Not just talking the talk, but their videos show those extremes coming together. They just don't care about boxing in their concept or personality. Their public-facing self is, like I said before, uncompromising. The second aspect is that we, not I, they will bloom with the fans. 
their choreography, their emphasis on teamwork and synchronization, their songs use of, in the trailers, use of words like we and together, they really are not just sending a message like, look at me, I'm confident, but look at us, we're, we all deserve to be confident. It's a spreading the self-love premise. And it's really resonating. They have over 2 million Instagram followers as of recording time, as well as tons of award show wins. Plus, relatively early on, they've been doing solo resume builders, with Unche getting to MC Music Bank, Hyunjin getting to release solo tracks we'll talk about in a bit, Che Won joined the cast to fill in the blank, a documentary-style show that's also kind of a reality show with a documentary format of sorts. So they've been able to really present their solo selves to the world right away too. Again, people are buying this act because they're buying what they're selling. They are walking the walk about what they talk the talk about with their confidence and their trust in their own solo and group creative visions. They also already have some solo Instagrams, which is refreshing to see because some K-pop groups, it's literally years before they get to post anything of their own accord with just their name on it. So being a strong team and strong soloists, they prove they're not mutually exclusive. The members are Chaewon, Unche, Kazuha, Sakura, and Junjin. Kim Garam left in July 2022. They fittingly debuted with Fearless, which has surpassed over 300 million Spotify streams, is certified platinum in Japan, topped iTunes in 13 regions, and sold over 307,000 copies, over 270,000 in just the first week of pre-orders, plus the Fearless video has over 100 million views. They also, again, continue to prove they're walking the walk, living fearlessly, uncompromisingly, letting people see every side to them with the docuseries The World is My Oyster, which we'll talk about in the future. The song of the same name kicks off this debut album. Then they debuted officially with the title track Fearless, a funk-based alt-pop song, and a very happy Sakura gets to do the intro, because she's my bias, and also because she was in Eyes One. She's been at this for years, and I'm just happy to finally see her really feel at home for the lawn haul. So to have her get a special shining moment with a new group felt like a special new beginning. This track was co-written and produced by Mr. Bang of Hybe slash Big Hit Labels, and the best lyric, if you ask me, is, if my scars are a part of me, I got no fear. I love that way of putting it. Hey, if this is just who I am, well, I've got nothing to fear. That's not supposed to spook me, is it? The video really is mesmerizing. Not just because, like I said, uncompromising presentation, but really just eye-catching hair flips down the line, the synchronization, fireworks, and just the interesting contrast. Because they really have a hushed, mysterious tone to their delivery, while singing a very bold, thematically, anthem. Its quietness is loud, and it is loudly quiet. The rest of the album... The R&B-ish Sour Grapes, where they kind of swear off love, say it's not worth it. The Great Mermaid, which is a very fun twist on a metaphor about feeling trapped in a bubble, but making it literal. Like you're a mermaid, feeling stuck under the sea, not where you want to be. That one I think has one of the best instrumentals. Then there's Blue Flame, with lyrics about burning passion in a collapsing limit. Writing credits for that one do include Chae Won and Yeonjin. Next era, 
Anti-Fragile, which surpassed 100 million video views and had over 600,000 stock pre-orders. It also earned them million seller status. The songs for Anti-Fragile and the title track choice, the whole theme of it, was all chosen before debut. So this was really a long time coming. They had a, an opposite of a sophomore slump prepared. It starts off with the Hydra. The Greek word hydra refers to water snake, which can regrow when it's cut in pieces, basically. It's a part of Greek mythology. Long story short, Hercules, yeah, Heracles, if you want to be one of those well-actually people. It's pronounced Heracles. Anyway, he kills this water serpent hydra, and every head he cuts off gets replaced by two other ones. So it's a never-ending battle by comparing themselves to this snake that regenerates itself. It's basically like, you could try to kill me, but it'll just make me stronger. If you want more on terms like that for mythology, I have an episode all about those called Music and Mythology. The Enhyphen episodes cover quite a bit of mythology as well. The video gives me Make It by 2PM vibes. Dancing at the end of the world, they are like, we are so committed to showing our most fearless, unapologetic selves that we will even until the last second on Earth. Like, meteor showers happening, but that's no excuse to get shy. Let's get out on the streets and dance. It's a very fun reggaeton song. It kept the fun fuzzy hat trend alive and well. And they keep showing how they're going to define strength and fierceness their own way. Like with ballet moves. They're redefining what is viewed as a delicate thing to do. Impurities became their OST to go with the webtoon, Crimson Heart, which ties into their whole story, adds fantastical elements. We'll talk about it on a future episode if you're interested. The video is very eye-catching in the ways that they dance in a formation. They're in all white, but surrounded by so many colors. It looks like it would be incredible to watch live, even just from like a back row aerial view. I think they're one of those K-pop groups where if you see them up high in the back, it was still worth it because looking down at them, you get some cool visual effects of their choreo. No Celestial, my favorite B-side from this one. A self-love theme song. It's mid-tempo. It sounds a little like Ring My Bell by Billy, which is their best song, so that's a positive. Then there's good parts, in parentheses, when the quality is bad, but I am. Up to you to interpret the parentheses. I like that they use those, though. The lack of capitalization is a petty issue that I have, but besides that, I like when high artists are really just out there with the album titles in the parentheticals that are so unnecessary, it's wonderful. I mean, TXT, Wannabe a Rock, good stuff. It really, really personalizes their work and leaves you thinking, like, hmm, why the alternate title? What is this about? So here they're saying, when the quality is bad, but I am. The but implies, but I am good, but they don't say that. So it's kind of weird and ambiguous. Shout out to Salem Elise, who worked on that one. Speaking of TXT connections. They did release a fearless Japanese version with a very cool, cute, beauty parlor-esque, Barbie-esque kind of music video setting. They also released Choices, a Japanese single, in super early 2023. Plus, Hyunjin has released some solo tracks. There was Raise Your Glass in August 22, then in January of 23, Idol, I not equal to doll, I and then the not equal symbol, doll, which is a clever play on words. It's a very cool hand-drawn video to go with it, where no matter how much her 2D self changes outfits and personas, people still criticize her. 
for being so early relatively in their career, for her to have so much awareness of this industry and how not to be led astray, how to still have confidence in herself, it's really refreshing. Her sureness in herself and rejection of Hollywood standards already will suit her well. And she has that good attitude in the March 23 release, Love You Twice, where she sings about the person she wants to be but can't be, with a perfect life and not feeling like she measures up. Again, it's very cool that she not only gets to have these vulnerable, but in some ways empowering in their honesty, songs, but she also gets to release them with hand-drawn illustrations. Animated videos that let her take her most literal vision, imagery, and bring it to life. I also love that she kind of gets at what Lay Seraphim get at implicitly, that there's no winning as a woman in Hollywood, so I try. We gave up the game. Like in Love You Twice, she says, funny but never too much, mysterious but always in touch. I mean, that's kind of it, right? Is an artist trying too hard to be cool? Or are they super uncool? Or are they aloof? Are they too promiscuous? Are they too puritanical? I mean, you just can't win. So they don't try. They're like, whatever. You could call us too much of this or that, but we're just gonna do us. And we're not gonna apologize or seek forgiveness, which leads us to their latest, Unforgiven. They indirectly, maybe even unintentionally, visually represent that pressure of stars to be not too much of this or that, to walk that tightrope. Because in the album trailer, they wear angel wings, but also sometimes on fire. Like, are they a mess or are they perfect angels? Plus, do the dark wings on fire represent the story of the character who flew too close to the sun, got way too high on his own supply? Or are they not confident enough so the wings are withered and not able to sustain the heat? And the trailer does talk about not caring. They say what I think is the coolest catchphrase, alone we meander, together we adventure. I love that phrase. If you're alone in life, it's called meandering. But if you have people by your side, call it an adventure. The unknown is exciting. And I love its place just in the burn the bridge, the intro trailer period. So here's the monologue, direct quote from it's called burn the bridge. The darkness drives me into a corner and forces me to choose either give up or give in. That I can go forward, but only within the limit. My answer? I wish for what is forbidden to me. A closed door, a door locked shut, another door slightly ajar. I open them all. The path I'm meant to follow is back there, and I say to you, let's go beyond together, to come to that faraway land with me. I'm never going back. We'll burn it all, and it will light our way. We don't have to be forgiven. We are unforgiven. Unquote. But in a separate teaser, quote, do you want to be forgiven? You don't have to. I'm unforgiven too. Alone we meander, but together we adventure, unquote. I just love that subversion of expectations, because usually it's viewed as don't burn bridges. Ideally, you build bridges to keep, but they're like, you know what? That wasn't suiting us. Our path will be lit if we burn that bridge. Quite a dual symbolism there. They also, as their fandom name was meant to allude to, keep using a blooming flower metaphor for themselves. And the flowers that fill the cinematic trailer video seem very intentionally placed. They really emphasize that better together energy with Unforgiven. With their really cute choreography that, again, requires a team to look cool and pull off. The way they join hands and swing their arms together and skip practically, so cute. 
They also just bring back the cowgirl chic vibe. The Yeehaw Summer we had with like Old Town Road, really state summer. The cowgirl vibe is back. They take over the Wild West in this video, an early summer hit. It samples The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, a song from that movie from 1966. Which again is a great fit because of the multitudes. Here we are, uncompromising. Good, bad, ugly. It's all here, and we don't care if you like it or not. They have that here we are, it's all here, sense of experimentation sonically too in the song No Return, aka Into the Unknown. They have a song on here sharing a name with the fandom, Fear Not, with an interesting parenthetical. If you combine it with the other parentheticals in song titles, it kind of forms a message. When the quality is bad, but I am, into the unknown, between you, me, and the lamppost. When the quality is bad, but I am into the unknown, between you, me, and the lamppost. I don't know, there's some instructions, some map is forming for some sort of mystery here. There's some fast-paced synthy danceable songs in Flash Forward and Fire in the Belly. This album also has some 2023 versions of previous releases. Then there is my favorite B-side, probably of theirs ever, Eve, Psyche, and the Bluebeard's Wife. Hybrid song titles are just unmatched. This is just such a, an EDM-ish banger about not dressing to impress or doing anything to impress. And I really want to talk now about the story of Bluebeard because it is actually fascinating and pretty dark and weird, but hang in there because after I explain, I think it'll make sense why they chose the reference. We all know Eve, right? And the apple representing temptation, the story of Adam and Eve, tale is literally old as time. So we're not going to talk much about that today, but we are going to talk about the other parts of the song title, Gory Alert Ahead. So here's my layman's terms version of what happens in The Tale of Bluebeard. There are tons of variations, but this is the pretty much generalized version of what goes down. It is bonkers. There once was this rich king who had a blue beard, and so despite his wealth, people were really turned off. Like, he was viewed as so ugly, they basically ran away. He was terrifyingly ugly because of that beard. So this king is a bachelor. He's made up his mind. He's like, my next wife is going to be one of the two neighbors. A woman and her two daughters live next door. So he's like, I don't care which, but one of those daughters will be my wife. And so he invites them over and the daughters go back and forth like, you take him, ew. No, you take him, ew. Not just because they find him ugly, but because they know no one knows what happened because it's really sus. Everyone around town knows he's had many wives, all of whom just disappeared. No one knows what happened. Bluebeard sees he's not winning, so he tries to woo them over by saying, spend a week here, a week in my lavish abode. So they have a bunch of fancy schmancy parties and game nights, the ultimate week-long slumber party at this rich dude's house. I guess it works, because he does end up with and marrying one of them. A month into the relationship, he tells this new wife, I have to go out of town for several weeks, so to keep yourself occupied while I'm away, feel free to invite over whoever you want. Go ahead and hang out with people here, throw a party, whatever. And here are the keys to every room. Go ahead and explore as much as you want. But only one room I must forbid you from looking in. Do not go in that closet. If you do, severe punishment. So she promises she won't peek and he leaves. She does invite girls over. They have a very fun time together just trying out all the outfits, exploring, having like a fashion show, just enjoying the riches. 
But when she's on her own again, she does go into the closet because her curiosity got the best of her. She couldn't take it anymore. You may know what she finds there. Not just a ton of blood, all of the corpses of his past wives just left in his closet. The key to open that forbidden door has this magic curse on it, which means no matter how much she scrubs it, it will not be clean. So it's bloodstained now, and she cannot hide the fact she used the key. Bluebeard comes back, wants the keys back, and she kind of stalls, is very hesitant, and then slowly just is like, sure, I'll hand you that last key, hoping he somehow doesn't notice it's stained. But he does, and he knows she looked in the closet. Now she knows too much, and he prepares to kill her as punishment. This is where things get even more off the rails. She stalls by saying, look, give me one last prayer. Give me some time for a final prayer before you kill me. And he said, fine, you get like 15 minutes tops. So she goes away to take advantage. Then she secretly calls for her sister. Remember, they're neighbors. And she said, get my brothers to come here with their weapons to save me. And so she just keeps asking her sister Anne, Anne, are they here yet? And she's like, no. Are they here? No. Tell them to hurry up. Tell them to hurry up. In this magical pre-cell phone land, obviously Anne telling the wind, hurry up is not working. But she keeps asking again and again, can they hurry up? They sort of do. It really goes on for a long time. Bluebeard's like, come on. And she's like, I'm coming just a minute so many times. And she's like, check again check again. Finally, the guys show up in the nick of time because she was really nanoseconds away from death when they storm in with their swords and kill the king. This wife inherited everything because the king had no heirs, so she gets his whole fortune, the entire estate to herself, and eventually she finds love with a good guy who supposedly was so good to her he helped her totally wipe from her memory that terrible traumatic incident. That's the story. Yeah, what happened? There was never any compulsion to maybe tell someone, hey, there are a bunch of dead bodies in that house. Never. That's the end of the story. She lived happily ever after with the money, the riches, etc. What's the moral of that story? You would be so surprised at the extreme amount of scholarship and debate about it. I'm on a lot of fairy tales. Truly, fairy tale scholarship is a thing. I'm fascinated by it, and I will link to some of it on my site. It is truly fascinating. But some people really go to bat for one argument or the other. Some say, like Charles Dickens, lived up to his last name, and he basically sympathizes with Bluebeard. Like, this woman wasn't listening. She gave in a temptation. She didn't listen to his demand not to look in the closet. She had it coming. Then, of course, you have the other extreme, where it's people saying she sends a good lesson about sometimes it's good to disobey, you will still end up victorious and free. To me, I cannot take a feminist interpretation of this just because her brothers are the ones who save her, and more so out of just good timing than real wit. Plus, in the first place, it's hard for me to find her a strong female lead or whatever because, I mean, she married this guy for the money. All the characters are shallow and unlikable to me, but that's just me. Now, why lay Seraphim refer to this story in that single? Well, first of all, their lyrics like, I wish for what's forbidden. And in the video, you see, instead of corpses, it's just an empty room. But they're where they were not told to go. And in the overall Just Comeback trailer, they talked about opening every door. We will open every door to us, and if it's locked, we'll still kick it open. So that kind of metaphor, that retelling, not as out of left field as you thought. They've also talked a lot before about a blue flame, and the color blue seems just symbolic to them, so there's that. 
There's the whole ethos they carry. Their story's all about, you know, skip into that good part at the end where they lavish themselves with everything they think they deserve. The whole kingdom, the riches, they deserve it all. Plus, they do seem to treat people with suspicion. You could draw more parallels with, like, the horses they ride, like the brothers who rode them to save the day, the Cupid's arrows they use instead of swords. One version of the story features this notable sign on the doors of the castle, Be bold, but not too bold, which goes with their whole commentary about don't worry about limitations on how you should or shouldn't act. Ignore those literal signs. And, of course, figurative. So there are quite a few connections, actually. But wow, what a story. And speaking of just bonkers stories, I also now want to talk about Psyche. This mythology story relates to Cupid, too, because Psyche and Cupid are the main couple. You've been warned, this story is going to totally ruin Cupid for you. If you thought of Cupid as just a cute little baby character, not after today, sorry. Cupid was, look, he was best friends with Zeus, the ultimate player. Eventually, it seems like they were buddy-buddy, like game-recognized-game kind of guys. So, not exactly a good guy. But let's continue. This is actually quite meta, because this is a story within a story about a story. It's a layered story, because it's a story from this old woman. So this old woman character told this story, and by word of mouth, passed it on to Lucius. Lucius is the narrator who tells a story, and part of Lucius's story that he's recounting from the woman is this separate story about Cupid and Psyche. So it's like 30 in knowledge, that's how it's treated. It comes out of a story called Metamorphoses, but it's also called the Golden ASS because the narrator Lucius is a literal ASS because his magic trick went wrong, so he's a donkey. So yeah, a donkey narrator introduced people to Cupid. Don't worry though, he becomes a human again, eats some magic roses, he's fine. Psyche is one of three siblings, the youngest and the fairest, very pretty, so pretty in fact, people think she must be the second coming of Venus. She's so stunning, like their literal queen, so they're like, we're gonna worship you and give you gifts and worship at your altar. And so they do, and Venus is ticked off, like, hey, she's a, a cheap copy, have the original. So she six Cupid, her son, on Psyche. Hey, I want to wreck her life for this. So you shoot her with an arrow so that she falls in love with someone super ugly and bad. Cupid is incompetent, and he accidentally scratches himself with his own arrow. So he falls in love with her and aborts his mom's mission. Meanwhile, Psyche's dad has to consult with his fake therapist Apollo, basically, being like, my man, what do I do? This daughter of mine has no man yet. We have to fix this. So Apollo's like, I got you. We're gonna have to twist fate a bit, because otherwise she'll end up with a literal dragon. So they combine a wedding and funeral. So Psyche just skips to the ultimate ceremony, ultimate what they dub the transition to the unknown life ceremony, this rite of passage. Then this character, Zephyrus, scoops her up and completes the ceremony by carrying her to this meadow and leaving her alone there. Yeah, I don't know. Cupid finds her there, but he can't reveal himself for some reason, so he dotes on her as like a disembodied voice. So his voice just kind of bursts out of him and follows her around, but they have a romance where he's invisible. So they do fall in love, and she becomes pregnant with his kid, but she never sees his face. 
Psyche's sisters come to visit. They hear about the situation and they're like, girl, you have got to find out what he looks like. And they really encourage that. So that night, against all better judgment, Psyche does what she's not supposed to do. And while Cupid's asleep, she goes to sneak a peek at his face. She's worried he looks like a hideous monster, so she pulls out a dagger and brings it with her just in case, plus a light. So a light and a dagger walks up to him in the dark, and she's not startled by a monster. She's startled by his enormous beauty. He is a beautiful man. She's so shocked, she kind of accidentally gets punctured by a nearby arrow Cupid had. So she develops feelings for him that are just next level uncontrollable. So she wakes him up. Like, we gotta really just full-on commit to a relationship, not invisible. And he flies away, abandoning her out of fear or out of just judginess or anger. I don't know. But he flies away. The signs of passion, I guess, can be felt like a force field type thing. So this wilderness god, Pan, senses the vibrations of passion, and that's how he finds Psyche. But that's just an interesting aside. He doesn't do much in the story for our sake. Anyway. Psyche starts wandering, looking for what happened to Cupid. She detours to visit her sisters, catches them up to speed, and they get super jealous. They're like, oh my gosh, you have a gorgeous husband? We didn't expect that. So instead of being happy for her, they're so jealous. So they try to fill her shoes and recreate that ceremony she went through. The final part of it was her on that rock structure, waiting for that character to scoop her up and drop her in the meadow. So they're like, me next, me next. But instead of getting scooped up after being precariously perched on a rock, they fall and die. Yeah, this story was definitely source material for Cinderella with those sisters. Venus captures her, captures Psyche, and brings her back home, lets her servants beat her to a pulp, threatens her, puts her through life-threatening tasks. One of which, throwback to my unhyphen dedicated episodes, is to gather water from the rivers of Cocytus and Styx. But during those tasks, people feel bad for her. Not just people, but things. Like the ants help her sort through beans and seeds to separate them. And a magical reed, the instrument, saves her at one point. So yeah, even inanimate objects want to help her out. This whole time, by the way, Cupid is still trapped there too. He's nursing a bad injury. The final task, the stakes are super high. Venus literally tells her she has to go to hell and bring back the beauty box. There's a beauty box she wants and don't open it, but just bring it to me. I need my youth back. So she sends her to hell, makes her go to hell and back for her beauty box. Psyche gets it, but curiosity gets the better of her. She does open it and finds out all that's in there is sleep. Literally, this is beauty sleep, the ultimate beauty box scam. This force in the box makes her fall into a deep sleep. If you want a connection to Care Bearus, who some K-pop stars have mentioned before, like Pentagon, that actually, that dog, that three-headed dog, makes an appearance, sort of, because he's mentioned as, hey, if you're going to the underworld, you need to not go empty-handed, bring something with to distract Care Bearus. Anyway... So Psyche's asleep, Cupid's wound heals enough that he can fly out a window, finds her, wakes her up, and helps her get the box and return it to Venus. They convince Zeus to basically clear the conscience of Cupid because he conducts this ceremony. He brings all the gods together for a big theatrical situation, very over the top, and uses that authority to basically ward Venus away. Tell her, hey, knock it off, leave him alone. 
He also then somehow basically clears Cupid of previous transgressions. So Cupid's long history of infidelity wiped clean. Like, no hell for you. Your soul's good. You're angelic again. All's well. Again, Zeus is such a player. Of course he did that. Cupid and Psyche have a kid named Voluptas. It means pleasure. So yeah, that's fitting. What a romantic tale that was. There are so many heated debates about this story's meaning too. Some view it as most symbolic when it comes to the sisters, jealousy and how it killed them. Some view it more in a Carl Jung type way, a psychoanalysis of feminine desire or the social concepts of family, the social construction of marriage and what true unity is, the perfect union, what that means. Some view it not about just defining that stuff, but about assigning certain moral value to it. Some focus more on the fact she's tasked with different things and what those tasks represent. Some focus more on Cupid, some more on her, some more on just self-discovery, evolution of character. Some view it about souls and damnation and lust, temptation, sins, forgiveness, karma. I mean, so many different themes have been applied. Some view it actually as a story of when petty feuds and envy are the death of women's equality. Some view it as a way to depict someone who feels isolated, forever alone, and that's the symbol with the waiting on a rock for being carried away to a meadow. Some say it's about kind of love, conquering all, or being found unexpectedly. There's also usually butterfly symbolism associated with this story. Lots of artwork with Cupid and Psyche over time has given butterfly wings to Psyche. Even though actually in this story, Psyche doesn't have any wings ever. That just became an artistic Mandela effect. Broadly, you could say a story of love and transformation. So that kind of makes sense with Les Seraphim. Their story is all about self-love, though, and evolving as they please, and also kind of redefining the world, social constructs, on their own terms. So loosely relevant. Plus, they shoot a Cupid's arrow in the video for this song. I also think knowing Hybe labels and their psychoanalysis approach sometimes, I do think the connection, the angle they're going for is more down that route about the psychology of self-discovery involved here, less about the romance or the suspense or direct symbolism, more about just what enormous monumental task it is to find yourself, feel fulfilled, whatever. High stakes in life and conquering them. That's how I think they thought of the story. And having a kid named Pleasure, you could read into that too. Also, possibly just a coincidence, but there's a story in the OG Little Mermaid story, there's kind of a similarity where her soul is granted immortality. Sorry, I totally forgot to mention that. Zeus also helps this couple form a perfect union truly, not just by absolving Cupid's conscience, but giving a drink of immortality to Psyche. Should have mentioned that for sure. Anyway, that sort of agreement is reached for the OG Little Mermaid, and it does have to do with her sister's coercion, her future with her man, and Les Seraphim have a song called The Great Mermaid, so you could theorize that was an intentional connection, or just the way that they started thinking down this train of thought. Thought about that, then thought about the sources of inspiration for the Little Mermaid, which include myths like this. Name any fairy tale story, princess story, etc. There's probably a tie back to to a myth. Mythology forms the groundwork of what we see in fairy tales. 
More than anything, though, I told those stories because I really wanted to. Giving Sparknotes versions of stories a big part of what I do on this show, and I love the excuse to share my recap. So don't read too much into the connections, but I hope I clarified what those connections could be. If you want some more fun random facts, the most famous version of the story comes from the author behind Puss in Boots and Sleeping Beauty and other stories too. Not a good transition out of talking about that, so I'm just going to wrap it up here. But in general, I do think Les Seraphim are really unique in the ways they are sending a message that girl groups are known to send. Their message of empowerment and living your best life takes very new quirky directions with their artistry. So they're doing it different and rewriting some expected assumptions about how they would deliver their message. It's not your average type of empowerment in their songs, and it's always just very, like I said, quirky, very out there, experimental. They are fearless in what source material they tackle. Definitely keep your eyes on this group, because they will continue to just pique our curiosity for very unexpected reasons. Alright, let me know what you think of either the stories I told or just Les Seraphim's story. If you want me to talk about their webtoon, I can do that in another episode. I could talk about different references more in depth. Or if you like when I share the folk tales, let me know that too. Any feedback about this kind of discography deep dive you want to share for the future, remember if you're listening on Spotify, there is a comment box right by the episode description. Also, you can message me on socials anytime. I hope you enjoyed this recap and appreciate Les Seraphim's unique creative vision now more than ever. Thank you all for tuning in to today's episode, and I will talk to you all again very soon. Bye, everybody!